Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, February 14th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the latest on the Pearl River flood threat with MEMA director Greg Michelle. And a lawsuit blocking a city buffer so zone ordinance gets sent back to state court. Then a clergy group advocates for prison reform. Plus, the forks of the road in Natchez gets closer to national park status. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Heavier-than-expected rainfalls this week have caused a major flood threat for northeast and downtown Jackson, as well as western Rankin County. The Pearl River is projected to rise and crest near 38 feet early Sunday morning, the highest level since 1983. We're joined now by Greg Michelle. He's the director of the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. Good morning, Greg. Hey, good morning, Karen. How are you today? I'm pretty good. Now, before we get to some of the details, the specifics, I want to ask this. Is this flooding event life-threatening? It absolutely could be, yes. And if people don't heed the evacuation uh, uh, order that uh, Mayor Lumumba put out yesterday, uh, it could, in fact, be life-threatening, yes. I went to Mima's website, which I recommend other people do because it's very comprehensive in, in, in the information it provides. And I counted a list of roads affected that could be affected, and it was 163 roads. Yes, yes. The, the water, if you, if you look at a flood inundation map, and we posted the link where uh, citizens can go out, and I highly encourage you to do that. If you, if you can layer 36 feet and 38 feet of Pearl River, and you put that map up, uh, it really tells a story of just how, uh, you know, overwhelming this could be should those levels reach those heights. What areas of Jackson or Rankin County, for that matter, are most at risk of a lot of flooding? Well, obviously, any of the areas that are going to be uh, in and around uh, the Pearl River, um, there are the, the unfortunately, they're the, the areas that we always see flash flooding at. Uh, in portions of the Jackson metro area. But if you look, again, if you look at that inundation map, those areas, some of those areas in northeast Jackson that flooded back in 1983, uh, those areas are at threat again. The, the, the issue is, and Mayor brought this up yesterday, you know, he uh, he wasn't around during the flood in 83, uh, before in 83, so he has no way of physically knowing that. And like myself, I don't either. So there are a lot of people that weren't here uh, during the 79 flood in 83 that have now moved to Jackson. So um, you really need to go and look at that inundation map, use that tool, uh, and it will tell you where you're, you could potentially be affected by this flood. Greg, I, I see that um, Interstate 55 and uh, Interstate 20 sort of meet at a part very close to the Pearl River. Is there any chance that that would be closed, that travelers will be affected in that way? Well, there's always a chance. I talked to Willie Huff last night with MDOT, and, of course, his folks are, uh, are looking at, uh, at everything. Now, the, based on our flood inundation maps that we have, that was one of the first things we did, and we met with Governor Reeves yesterday. Uh, obviously, that was his concern. At 38 feet, uh, we've got areas where the water is going to get very close to 55. 
we don't see any areas right now that if it reached 38 feet that it would affect uh, Interstate uh, 55 or, or other high traffic areas. But again, there's been a lot of construction, um, you know, on I-55. Anything you do will always affect the water flow, but we don't anticipate, we do not anticipate uh, I-55 being uh, breached by the river. And how can people find out if a road is closed? Well, we're going to continue to keep the MEMA website up to date. Uh, we'll be posting on social media. Uh, of course, we'll be doing daily briefings and put, pushing that information out to the media as well. But, you know, I know a lot of people don't have access to Internet, but we, we post a lot of our stuff uh, to social media, and then we get it to the media to put out in print as well. All right, so we can go and check with MEMA about road closures. And MDOT does an excellent job of keeping uh, their website up, too, as far as current uh, road closures. Right. So either MDOT or our website, uh, is very, we keep it very current. And last question, this is expected to be worse on Sunday. What about the following days? Yes, yeah, so we don't know right now about the following days. We have a call at 9 o'clock today. It really is a factor of the whole capacity in the reservoir. The team at the Ross Barnett Reservoir doing an excellent job of managing capacity and outflow. Um, it really depends on the amount of rain we get next week. We'll know more today after the 9 o'clock call what the effects on Sunday are going to be. But certainly, depending on what rain we get next week, could have uh, certainly a negative effect on what the river flows look like next week. So we just got to pay attention and watch it closely, and we will. Greg Michelle with MEMA, thanks so much. Thank you, Karen. A lawsuit challenging the city of Jackson ordinance that places a buffer between protesters and the state's only abortion clinic will now be heard in state court. A lawsuit filed by the Mississippi Justice Institute challenges the ordinance, saying it violates their right to free speech under Mississippi's Constitution. Aaron Rice is the director of the Mississippi Justice Institute. He tells MPB's Kobe Vance the ordinance hindered his client's ability to engage in conversation with clinic patients. The city of Jackson recently passed an ordinance that would make it impossible for our clients to engage in those conversations. And so we have filed a free speech lawsuit in Hines County Circuit Court uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, challenging that ordinance um, and, and alleging that it violates the free speech protections of the Mississippi Constitution. I noticed that they tried to appeal and go into the uh, United States court um, that's and right. that's been uh, – could you tell me a little bit about that process and why it was kicked back? Yeah, so so we filed our case, uh, as I mentioned, in Hines County Circuit Court, which is a state court. Um, and, again, we were only alleging violations of the Mississippi Constitution. Uh, we felt like it was important to give our state courts an opportunity to interpret the Mississippi Constitution and decide how much protection it affords in a situation like this. The city of Jackson removed the case uh, to federal court, which defendants have an automatic right to do that. Um, however, they are not supposed to do it unless they, they have good grounds, good legal basis to do it, um, because it can result in a distraction, so to speak, uh, of the parties fighting over what court they should be in rather than litigating the merits of the case. And that's what happened here. We um, opposed the uh we filed a motion to remand the case back to state court, and ultimately the federal court that the case was removed to uh, issued a ruling and sided with us, with Mississippi Justice Institute and the sidewalk advocates, and found that this case belongs in state court. And going further than that, the court found that the city of Jackson actually did not even have any reasonable basis to move the case to federal court to begin with. And because of that, uh, the court ordered the city of Jackson to pay the attorney's fees and the court costs 
that we have incurred uh, during this lengthy battle over what court our case belonged in. And so as far as the actual uh, battle goes, and uh, legal battle that is, um, can you tell me a little bit about what some of the uh, what are some of the, the hopes or the outcomes for your firm? Yeah, uh, well, you know, we represent um, members of Sidewalk Advocates for Life, Jackson, Mississippi. And, you know, it's really about their hopes. They do this for free. This is charity, nonprofit work that they do. Nobody's paying them to do this. Um, it's really just on their heart to go out and have these conversations every day. And, uh, and, and that's all they want to do. Um, is just to be able to to go near the abortion center and have conversations about one of the most uh, profound moral and political issues facing our country, and they do that in a compassionate way um, and and in a respectful way, um, and that's all they want to do. Aaron Rice is the director of the Mississippi Justice Institute. Diane Dursis is the owner of the Jackson Women's Health Organization. She tells our Kobe Vance there can be hundreds of protesters in front of the clinic blocking traffic and causing a disturbance. This action was brought because we have 150 to 200 protesters in the middle of the street stopping traffic, harassing not only our patients but anyone that's on the sidewalk or the street. Um, This is clearly a violation of not only the city of Jackson laws, but a violation of um, what should be going on around a medical facility. I'm the first one who would tell you they have a right to protest, but they don't have a right to interfere with my patients getting into the clinic or my staff getting into work. And now the city of Jackson originally tried to take it to, um, it looks like the U.S. court, and now it's being kicked back down to state court. Um, do you think that hinders the chance of this uh, staying in place? No, I don't. Uh, the The laws are clear that what the city passed is constitutional and has been upheld throughout the country. You know, this is just part of the process of... Um, you know, them doing everything they possibly can to try to stop a woman from having an, an abortion. Try to stop this. Not even that. They, they'll, they'll be the first to tell you they don't want her going in to have a pregnancy test. They don't want her going in to get on birth control. So, you know, that that's what this comes down to. Whether a group of people who believe um, can stop everyone else from either using a public street or going into a public business. You know, a lot of people are saying this is a uh, violation of freedom of speech. Uh, would you context- Would you call it a, f- a violation of freedom of speech? It has absolutely nothing to do with freedom of speech. This is whether or not you, you have competing rights here. But certainly, I think any any citizen in Jackson who pays property taxes. And taxes on things would be quite upset if they couldn't turn up a road that is a public road and not get through. You know, and that's what we're looking at. Uh, what would you What would you say is a good balance of um, allowing people to to voice their opinions, but also keep safety in the streets? You know, over, it's a good question, Kobe. Over the years, I have offered anti-choice people. Um, access to my property, for them to set up a table, for them to have first chance at talking with a patient if that was her desire. They couldn't force it and they couldn't yell at her, but they would be there and they would have every opportunity to quietly 
talk with someone, but that's not what they want. They want to shame, harass, embarrass, and make it so difficult for someone trying to get in that they don't succeed. Diane Dursis is the owner of the Jackson Women's Health Organization. Coming up, a clergy group advocates for prison reform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The 2020 legislative session is underway at the Mississippi State Capitol, and at issue is the place to be for gavel-to-gavel coverage. Lawmakers are expected to discuss a number of issues like criminal justice reform, teacher and state employee pay raises, and workforce development. Join me, Wilson Stribling, along with our political analysts, Brandon Jones and Austin Barber, as we bring you insight on these issues and how lawmakers are handling them. At issue, Friday nights at 7.30 on MPB TV. I'm Karen Brown. Members of the clergy from across the state and from different denominations are rallying for prison reform at the state capitol. Members of clergy for prison reform say it's time for state legislators to give ex-prisoners a new chance at life. Wesley Bridges is CEO of clergy for prison reform and pastor at Unity Worship Ministry in Monticello. He says the organization's policy is based on the biblical teachings of Jesus. We feel that uh, on the front line of any situation, our faith uh, should lead and uh, the Bible tells us to remember prisoners as if we were in prisons ourselves and so that's how clergy for prison reform was based to kind of just give a faith uh, put a faith lens on uh, what let some legislation should look like uh, you know we're not we're not policy wonks per se but we can certainly tell you what uh, the word of God says in reference to mercy and grace and justice myself I had a, I had a brother who's in prison for four years here in Miss, uh, Mississippi Department of Corrections and and visiting him over those four years and having to go in and out uh, and see what uh, they were dealing with. Uh, the situations was not as dire as they are now, uh, but I saw then that this, uh, this system needs work. It needs work from top to the bottom. And, uh, and so when this opportunity came up with clergy for prison reform, something that I had been praying about, I said, God, I want to be passionate about this work. Show me the avenue. And this is where I, uh, he landed me, clergy for prison reform. Reverend Wesley Bridges is the pastor of Unity Worship Church and CEO of Clergy for Prison Reform. Anthony Witherspoon was convicted of manslaughter in 1992. Today, he has a doctorate degree, owns two successful businesses, and is the mayor of Magnolia. He says he wants to see a two-part approach to prison reform that reduces the overcrowding of prisons. One of the things that jumps out the most to me about the headlines Um, today about the Mississippi Department of Corrections is the fact that uh, Unit 29 uh, and the conditions that exist there did not happen overnight. Uh, As I said, I'm formerly incarcerated. I did do time in Parchman. However, we did not have cell phones and social media outlets at the time that I was incarcerated uh, in the mid to um, late 90s, early 2000s. and so I'm, although cell phones are not permitted, I'm actually happy to see that they were able to utilize those cell phones to get the images out about the conditions that uh, they were living in. And as you know uh, from those pictures, there is no way a unit such as 29 can get in that shape uh, overnight. The safety issues have always existed. Uh, underfunding the budget and uh, lack of security issues have always existed. And I know that you can't put a spin 
uh, on those pictures and, and on those videos that were captured on those cell phones. So today I'm hopeful uh, that the inmates there, uh, the people there that are serving time, will have some form of relief coming from the legislature, Mississippi legislature. However, I'm also concerned that we uh, use a two-pronged approach. Uh, there is over-incarceration uh, in our system. Uh, we are the third largest uh, incarcerated uh, state in the, in, in, the, in the world, actually. And I think that if we approach this two-prone, not only just reducing uh, the population uh, of inmates that we currently have, but also being proactive on the front end and coming up with real rehabilitation programs and reentry programs that give people a, 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 a real chance of being a, a law-abiding, uh, tax-paying, successful citizen. Anthony Witherspoon is the mayor of Magnolia. Coming up, the Forks of the Road in Natchez gets closer to national park status. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. For MPB's Moments in Black History, we highlight Denise LaSalle. After finding her voice in the church of her childhood home of Belzona, she switched to R&B music and in 1971 created a number one hit, Trapped by a Thing Called Love. But it was not until she signed with Jackson-based Malico Records that she became known as the Queen of the Blues. In 2015, Denise LaSalle was even inducted into the R&B Music Hall of Fame. This has been MPB's Moments in Black History. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. In 1995, Clifford M. Boxley was set to leave his hometown of Natchez for the African continent, where he planned to live out the rest of his life. But the history of his hometown called on him to stay, preserve, and reinterpret that complex history. 25 years later, Mr. Boxley is leading the charge to have the historic Forks of the Road attain national park status. He tells us more about his mission. And when I returned home to Natchez, uh, I was much more alert in terms of African history, the presence of history, the use of history to uh, explain the people's existence and presence and contribution. And then that forced me to uh, search for uh, sites, uh, 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 physical public sites that did not speak to persons' history. You know, that's the traditional European way of, of interpreting history, a person's history. You'll hear a lot of it this this month in, in, in uh, February, what they call Black History Month. You'll have a lot of promotion of persons and not a people's history. So I wanted something to speak to a people. And I chose, that once I learned about the folks of the road in my research, I chose that site because it spoke to uh, not only the African-American presence and contribution, it spoke to the European wealth and heritage and what have you uh, up until uh, uh, after the Civil War, in the antebellum days, that they would call it. So I wanted something that would speak to uh, a much broader purpose, and I chose that Fox of the Road as the equalizer. Can you tell us what the slave trail was, where it started, where it went, who was in it? So... What we're talking about is after the United States Congress 
banned or made it supposedly illegal to continue to force bring Africans from African captivity for uh, submission into enslavement. In the South, uh, it became necessary in the southern states for the cotton and sugar kingdom to need a labor source. So what happened is America had uh, the birth of what we call the domestic or internal, quote, slave trade, unquote. And this meant that the upper Old South states of Virginia, Maryland, uh, the Carolinas, Kentucky, Missouri, uh, uh, Tennessee, would then start, uh, professional dealers would start uh, capturing, uh, ill-getting, uh, buying, uh, however, hook or crook, capturing uh, Africans or uh, descendants who were already enslaved and forced bringing them in captivity to markets in the deep south uh, and, and, sell, and reselling them or selling them. And the folks of the road, actually Natchez itself, proper, Natchez property, was a destination of professional enslavement traffickers as well as those people who were migrating, seeking to build new kingdoms or empires or what have you. So in 1833, the city of Natchez passed an ordinance uh, chasing the long-distance dealers out of the city center, and these long-distance dealers from the upper south states and other places relocated at the folks of the road. They concentrated there, and just the folks of the road juncture in Natchez in the east part of Natchez became the second largest enslavement selling market next to New Orleans in the southwest. The uh, There is a marker or a plaque that marks the spot. You're looking for a much wider area to get federal protection and yeah. more history uh, about that spot? Yeah, the marker uh, was put there as the results of the Juneteenth Committee. Uh, the first ceremony that uh, my person took part of was the Juneteenth celebration here in Natchez in 1995, when the state passed the uh, one time 1671, House Bill 1671, I think it was, uh, money to preserve African-American sites, that the uh, city of Natchez would apply for those funds and buy property at the forks of the road for the purpose of holding it for the National Park Service. So the, the goal has always been to preserve uh, the, the history to preserve the land, the historical sites, and to have the uh, Park Service interpret it, it own and interpret uh, the site. You've been doing this for 25 years, you said. I, I've been working for, for African uh, history and heritage and ancestors, uh, humanity, re- redemption since 1966. Uh, and so that was a story there at the folks of the road about our enslaved ancestors who are responsible for African-Americans' presence in Mississippi and other places today whose history and humanity had been denied. And so it became a restoration, a resurrection. Uh, do you expect the transfer of property? And, and Have you been assured that that is going to happen? Well, in talking to the superintendent of the Natchez National Historic Park, she thinks it's going to happen this year. Again, I want to let you know that there have been hundreds and hundreds of people who have been joining in this movement since I've been here. It wasn't something I just did by my person. Thank you so much, Mr. Boxley. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. 
I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.